So, um, good morning, New Hope Community Church. Uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Um, I'm glad that you've chosen to spend a bit of your Sunday morning with us. Uh, on the sign that's out front of the church building, um, it says that uh, New Hope is a non-denominational community of Jesus followers committed to Christ-centered worship, small group discipleship, and sacrificial service to others. All are welcome. That's it. That's what we're about. We are a community of Jesus followers, or another way to put it is that we are a community of disciples. The word disciple comes from discipline, so it means student. So you could say that we're a church of students. You could say that any church is actually a student ministry. Last fall, we took some time to work slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. We said that the Sermon on the Mount um, was Jesus' stump speech. It was his inaugural address. The Sermon on the Mount is a a condensed teaching from the words of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, on what it means to live out this new way of being human that he was advocating, a, a way based on love of God and love of others, this, this principle that you can't really do one without doing the other. In short, the Sermon on the Mount calls us to worship, discipleship, and mission, and that's how we shape the life of our church around that idea. So Jesus gives this crowd this teaching that came to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends it by saying this. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fail because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So Jesus desires that our house be built on the rock. What kind of house could we take this to mean? Well, well, Jesus is clearly making an analogy that, that someone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their home on rock. So even though the storm raged on, the house stayed put because it was given the proper foundation. So there is an individual aspect to this teaching, right? But since Jesus' words and the Bible at large is so concerned with community, I don't think it would be a leap to say that Jesus also desires that his way of kingdom living would permeate gatherings of, of people, gatherings of Jesus' followers. For instance, our families, our households that could be built on rock, and our churches, our houses of faith that is built on the rock, that is, could be built on the rock, specifically New Hope Community Church, of course. So, taking our cue from Jesus' words there, we're starting this new series called A House Built on Rock. This series is about foundation. Actually, the entire summer is going to be a, a two series back-to-back on, uh, on foundations, on, on this concept of, of what are we building on. We're not going to rehash the Sermon on the Mount, although that's certainly foundational because we just did that. 
But instead, I thought that we could take our cue from one particularly tumultuous time in church history when Christians were forced to examine, they were compelled to examine uh, the foundation of their faith, or the foundation of the, the infrastructure of the church, namely the Protestant Reformation. There's a phrase that's come to be associated with the Protestant Reformation that, that it says, after darkness, light. The thing is, it, it's not like Martin Luther just walked onto the scene and flipped the switch and everybody saw Christianity in its proper light. No, the, Refor the light of the Reformation was Scripture, the light of Scripture giving um, uh, God's people clarity. Um, but, but you and I both know that history is more complicated than Martin Luther coming up on the scene and saying, hey, everybody, we should do it this way. At its best, the Reformation, it helped the church think through some of that foundation, some, think through some of these foundational principles that had been neglected foundational principles that I think we would be wise to think through today. But don't worry, this is not a series on church history. At its heart, this series, A House Built on Rock, is a series about one sentence that is foundational to our understanding of God. And that sentence is this, that through Scripture, the Holy Spirit proclaims that it is by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Um, let me say that again. Through Scripture, the Holy Spirit proclaims that it is by grace you have been saved through faith to the, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. That sentence reflects um, what some have called uh, what has come to be known as the five uh, solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Grazia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Dello Gloria. That's the only Latin you're going to get in this series. One writer says um, the solas are, are not peripheral matters positioned to entangle us in kind of needless tertiary doctrinal squabbles. Um, rather, they are the essence of the gospel. When we embrace them, we embrace the gospel. When we articulate them, we articulate the gospel. Um, when we live consciously of them, we live in the power of the gospel. That is why these five principles are foundational, not just because they're associated with any um, particular human theology or a particular time period in church history. They're foundational because they're, they're core to the understanding of Jesus' kingdom announcement. And so I want to start the series today uh, by discussing the Bible. I want to talk about Scripture, uh, the Word of God. And if you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Actually, uh, I'll pass this along to you this week. Um, my, favorite, uh, um, my favorite paper that I ever wrote for seminary was on this passage. Second um, Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. Most likely, this is a letter written towards the end of Paul's life. At its heart, this is a love letter from a mentor. It's a letter of conviction um, and even correction, 
But at its core, it's a letter of love written from Paul to someone that he had been investing in. Another one of Jesus' admonitions during the Sermon on the Mount was, was that we would lay up treasures in heaven. I think that this letter is a fine example of how Paul was doing just that, in, in the, uh, that very thing in the midst of his relationship with Timothy. As Paul was, was pouring himself out to Timothy, that's how he was laying up treasure in heaven, by building into another human being that was going to continue the work of the gospel after Paul was gone. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul discusses the challenges of doing ministry in the proximity of notoriously sinful people, the selfish, the greedy, the proud, the arrogant, the abusive, and the disobedient. As a minister of the gospel, Paul and Timothy's call would be to minister to such individuals, but, but as Timothy does ministry, it'll be important that he is aware of the challenges that are before him. And in comparison, Paul takes this opportunity to speak words of comfort and encouragement to Timothy. Paul says this, You, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. It's interesting how the first part of that passage is very focused on Paul, right? My patience, my faith, my uh, love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. But then Paul is very quick to correct that. Like, yeah, yeah, all this stuff happened to me, but it was the Lord that rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul is saying, like, you know, the world's just going to keep on being the world. Like Jesus once said, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the unhealthy. Unfortunately, you can't stand for things like love, joy, and peace in a world fixed on hate, anger, and violence without facing some degree of persecution. So Paul continues, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture, and here it is, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, meaning um, to give evidence, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love that phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Other translations say that, that all Scripture is inspired by God. Um, and, uh, but the word there, the, the, the word that is actually used in the, in the Greek is uh, God-breathed. It's theonoustos, God-breathed. So here we see the, the connective tissue, right, between this series and the previous one. 
when we combine God language with breath language, that, that reminds us of the Holy Spirit, the ruach of God, the, the pneuma of God, the rushing wind of God breathed life into these words and provided a proclamation for the people of God that is useful for correction and training in order that the people of God might be equipped, equipped for kingdom work, equipped to, to live out those spiritual gifts that we talked about two weeks ago. Do you know what the, um, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Take a guess how many, cha- how many verses Psalm 119 is. 176. Psalm 119 is 176 verses long. And, and what it is, is a 176 verse love poem to the Word of God, um, to, to the law, to Scripture. Its verses, they form a, a gigantic acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, every line is just pouring out emotion in reverence to God's word. Uh, probably the most quoted verse is, is verse 105, uh, which says, Your word is a, is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. See, the psalmist, he wants to convey this truth that it is by the light of Scripture that we see the path before us. By the light of Scripture, we can see life's inevitable trials for what they are. By the light of Scripture, we can interpret the turmoil and the joys of this world. By the light of Scripture, we see hope is a reality. And as Paul says, By the light of Scripture, we find teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So, before we go any further, let me me just ask you, what role does the Bible play in your life? How important is the Word of God to you? Is the Word of God as important to you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, as important as flipping on the light switch would be for you physically? Is it important enough? Is the Word of God important enough for you to make time for it every day? Is it important enough to memorize it? Is it important enough to discuss it with your kids? Is it important enough to study it with other disciples in a house church? Our first question for this series is, if you claim that Scripture is foundational to your faith, how foundational is it to your life? If, if, if I had pastor magic and I could change one thing about your faith, it would be this, that you would spend 15 more minutes a day in Scripture than you currently are. I, I believe that for you, and I, actually I believe that for myself. For those of you spending lots of time with the Word, great, I wish you more. But for those who aren't currently carving out time in your schedule for Scripture, I can only imagine what just, just 15 more minutes in a quiet chair in, that, in, a, in, a, in a quiet part of your house, if there is a, hopefully, hopefully there is a quiet part of your house, um, where, where you can uh, hear God's heart um, and invest yourself in God's story. The truth is that it might, be, it might mean 15 less minutes on the news. It might mean 15 less minutes on social media. 
It might mean 15 less minutes of TV or 15 less minutes of video games. Once I was having a, a conversation with, a, with another pastor, and, and we were talking about this very issue, um, the, the amount of time spent in Scripture and in, in prayer. Um, and I really wasn't trying to like one-up him or anything like that. We were having just an honest conversation. And, and he said that, that he tried to make it a habit to spend the first half an hour of his day with God in, in Scripture and prayer. And that is a commendable goal to be sure. I am sure that there are many of you uh, out there listening right now that, that like to do that, that like to give God the first 30 minutes of your day. And, and I said to him, I said, wow, that, that is really something that's great. There's certainly a bunch of scripture to back that up. That being said, my personal conviction is that God wants me at my best. And he wants to speak to me at a time when, when I can hear him and implement what he says. And if God wants me at my best, I don't think he wants much to do with the first 30 minutes of my day. No, if, if I was really going to make the sacrificial play, it would be that I would give God the first 30 minutes of my work day, the first 30 minutes of my production the first 30 minutes of the clearest 30 minutes of my day, the first 30 minutes where my impulse would be to put out fires, to read emails, to, to make phone calls, to get about the business of the business, I could get a lot of things done in that first 30 minutes because you're ready to go, right? You're getting in your office, or you're, you're on the job site, and you're ready to go. But what if the first 30 minutes were given to the Word of God? What if the first 30 minutes of my workday were spent with the lamp, that would be the light uh, to my feet for the rest of the day. Now, depending on what kind of work you do, that might mean that you have to get to work an hour earlier or half hour earlier. Or, you know, maybe that means that that time is, is in your car before you actually go into the office. And, or, or maybe it's on an audio book while you're in traffic. Uh, maybe it's with a coworker or two uh, before the official day begins. I, I don't know what it is for you, but uh, maybe for you the clearest half, a day, half hour of your day might, might actually not be in the morning at all. It might be in the evening or, or in another part of the day. I don't know what the specifics are for you personally, but I, but I know that it could be something. I know there is a small step, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever. I know that there is a small step that you could make tomorrow, a habit-forming step, to see about getting just a little bit more time in Scripture in your day. Psalm 119, it tells us the word of God is a, is a lamp unto our feet. But, but that doesn't mean that it is the path itself or the destination. It's been said that only a fool looks at the finger that is pointing to the sky. Now, I just spent the past like 10 minutes talking to you about the importance of spending time in Scripture. So I'm not saying it's foolish to read your Bible. But I am saying this. When we speak of the importance of the Bible, or when, um, or when we speak of the authority of Scripture, that is shorthand for speaking of the authority of God exercised through Scripture. You know, Jesus didn't gather his disciples moments before he ascended to the right hand of the Father and tell them that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to the books that they were going to go off and write. No, all authority is given to Jesus 
And Scripture begs us to follow Him, not just be better Bible scholars. The sad truth is that there are some in this world who have spent their entire lives studying Scripture, studying the Bible, and it never got to be anything more than academia. Paul said that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. At the time, he was talking about food sacrificed to idols, but the principle is still the same, that, that head knowledge, it can only get you so far. It's the heart that God is after. Heart change that leads to change in your actions. On the other hand, there are some who hold the Bible in high regard who, who will clearly say that the Bible is a God-breathed book, um, that this is the most important book ever written, um, but will merely relegate it to people like me. You know, I'm a pastor. I have a Master in Arts of Theology. I know just enough Koine Greek to be dangerous. I am eternally grateful that I have had the opportunity to study the Bible with some of the greatest New Testament scholars alive today and collect a substantial library of biblical commentary. But hear me, people of God. I have no more business in the Bible than you do. My hope is that I can aid you, that I can equip you, that I can build you up, encourage you to spend time with this word and let it change your heart. But every person listening to my voice right now needs to know that you are invited to open the word of God for yourself and to let it speak for you because it's all pointing to Jesus who loves you far more than any book could ever say. In seminary, we learned about what's called the uh, Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah, I thought that was a football reference too. Um, but actually, it turns out it's like a theology thing. Um, basically, Christian theology, it comes from four searched sources. Scripture, experience, reason, and tradition. Um, through experience, we learn about our, the cultures that formed us and, and the life that we've been given. Um, those things shape our understanding of God. Uh, through reason, we learn about science and, and thought and use our minds to form understandings of God. We look for patterns in order to solve the greatest problems of our day. And then through tradition, we learn about how the people of God have understood him over the century. So none of these sources can be dismissed outright. As Protestant, non-denominational evangelicals, we might be tempted to dismiss tradition, right? You know, well, didn't we leave all that behind during the Reformation? No. No, without tradition, we wouldn't have a Bible. The Holy Spirit didn't breathe out a table of contents. We have good reason to trust the books that are in the Bible, but that only goes to show that tradition does have its place. The problem is that throughout church history, we have placed the other three things, uh, experience, reason, and tradition, at the center of our faith, and it's had disastrous results. Because when we place experience at the center, then faith just becomes uh, individualistic. It becomes hard to argue with somebody because it's hard to argue with someone's experience. Um, we say things like, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you're true to yourself or something. Doctrine at best is just a suggestion when we put 
experience as the center and personal experience becomes paramount. Um, or when we put reason at the center, uh, we trust in science, we trust in the repeatable, which again seems like a good choice at first. Science is real, like they might be giants said. But the Enlightenment showed us that that, only, that could only get us so far. Uh, the the chaotician Ian Malcolm quipped, the scientists can become so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they don't stop to think if they should. And of course, when we put tradition at the center, it gives power to the keepers of that tradition. And when you question that power, as Luther did during the Reformation, you face consequences. So in 1521, Martin Luther stands before the imperial diet of Worms and is given an opportunity to recant some of the things that he had written against Roman authority. And his reply is this. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience, Luther says, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. It wasn't until the 20th century that the phrase sola scriptura was, was commonly used. Basically, the point is that Scripture, the point of sola scriptura, is that, that Scripture has the final authority in, in matters of our understanding of God. Experience, reason, and tradition are all important parts of what it means to be a Christian. After all, God has given you experiences to live through and a mind to help you process them and traditions to give them meaning, but evangelical Christians see other, those other three categories in light of Scripture. Why is Scripture so important? Because it is in Scripture alone that we find the gospel. In Scripture alone, we see that euangelion, the good news that God is putting his world to rights. In the words of our, of our series sentence, Scripture is where you discover that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Scripture is where we discover the story we find ourselves in. I mean, if you open your Bible to the table of contents, you'll discover that um, it appears to kind of be laid out the way that most books are, right? It would appear that the book has 66 chapters and is separated into two acts, right? Act 1 is commonly referred to as the Old Testament, Act 2, the New Testament. As we dive deeper, we discover that the Bible is indeed a book, but it actually is, might be better described as a library of books. Uh, here is where we kind of, we see that it's divided into those two parts. Um, you might also hear the, the, the Old Testament called the Hebrew Bible, um, or even the First Testament, some call it the First Testament. It contains 39 books, all of which come to us from Hebrew tradition. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel and also includes wisdom and um, uh, wisdom literature and prophecy, much of which looks um, like it is kind of laid out in poetic verse. Uh, part two of the Bible is what's commonly referred to as the New Testament. Uh, testament itself, the word testament means covenant. So in part one, we have the old covenant, and then in part two, Jesus gives us the new covenant. The New Testament is concerned uh, everything um, regarding Jesus' life and, and thereafter. 
so then we see in the New Testament we have the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, which are just four uh, different ways of telling the same story, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, then we see uh, the book of Acts, which is uh, actually a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. Acts tells the story of the early church and introduces us to a critical figure uh, in the life of the early church, the Apostle Paul. Then the New Testament contains 13 letters commonly attributed to Paul that he wrote to churches just like ours in the first century A.D. After Paul's letters, there are other letters written by various ministers of the early church. And finally, we have the book of Revelation, which is a prophetic book describing the things that are to come. So that's it, in a nutshell, if you were to look at your table of contents. Sometimes the Bible can seem, can seem like an intimidating book. You open it up and you see strange names and you see strange places, and it's easy to just kind of feel like, well, to throw up your arms and walk away from it. For me, the most important thing to remember about the Bible is that it contains a, and this is a big word, meta-narrative. It contains an overarching story that reaches from the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis on through the description of new creation that happens at the end of Revelation. You and I find ourselves in the midst of that story. We find ourselves in the sense that we can locate it, you know, ourselves in the, in the, in the line of history in a linear sense. More importantly, though, we find ourselves because this is a story that gives us our identity. My story alone might seem like it doesn't make sense. My story on its own has a lot of sharp edges. My story has a lot of unresolved themes. There's beauty in it to be sure, especially if I put down my pride, but, but my story, your story, our story, only finds its true meaning when it is placed in the context of the grand meta-narrative of the Bible. That story is the final authority of everything that the church is. It's the final authority of everything we are as a Christ follower. That story that God is telling. That's why the Bible is so vitally important to who we are as a congregation. You know, over the years, New Hope has accumulated a, a vast library of biblical resources, that all of which are, that are at your disposal. If you'd ever like to sit down and work through some of the Bible, some of Scripture with me personally, uh, just one-on-one -on -one to get you started, nothing would give me more joy. I can recommend books, I can recommend teachings and commentaries and internet resources and lectures and videos and lots of other resources to kind of get you going. You know, personally though, I think I'll, I'll end with this. I just think that the best way to study Scripture, the best way to just get it inside you, the best way for it to, to get into your heart is to study it and to memorize it with other Jesus followers. That's why discipleship for us is, is associated to that word small group, small group discipleship. I think that one of the best ways that you could find the time in your, the, the, to make the study of Scripture regular is by doing it and studying the, the Word with, with other humans, with other Jesus followers. Um, with that, um, let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you so much for pre uh, preserving this ancient text, for preserving these sacred writings that form us, that give us life, that um, give us our identity. Help us see that we are not the main character of this story. You are. Help us to see that we are supporting characters of the story that you are telling towards cosmic reconciliation. And help us live into the faithfulness um, that you have showed us by reflecting faithfulness back out into the world that, that you are um, bringing together again. That you are reconciling back to yourself. Help us to play our role as you see fit. And help us to proclaim that basic truth that it is by grace we have been saved, as we'll talk about next week, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as we go through this series. Father, help us um, do this check, do this necessary check of our foundation, and help us um, use these foundations to build for your kingdom to your glory alone. In the most holy name of Scripture, uh, most holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <laughs>